Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about advertising, marketing, pop culture, media, technology, because in the end, everything is an ad for something else. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with adweek.com. And with me this week, as always, is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, thank you for making time for us. Hey, David. And we've also got two new guests uh, to the podcast. Christine Berkner, a staff writer with Adweek who covers branding and agencies and marketing. How are you today, Christine? I'm great. Thanks. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, We've also got another first-time guest uh, that I've been really excited to have on here. Chris Ahrens, our TV and media editor. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Of course. And we've got uh, Chris on to talk about some really uh, interesting TV issues that have been coming up lately, some ratings on the debates, and uh, also got some fun branding stories that I can't wait to get Christine to weigh in on. So we're going to dive right into those. Biggest news I'd say this week, and it's been kind of a recurring topic lately on our podcast, is uh, the Samsung uh, complete kind of brand implosion or frequently explosion of the Galaxy Note 7. Uh, This is a device that, of course, was plagued by uh, some battery explosion issues, and they did a massive recall, one of the largest recalls in consumer electronics history. It did not work. They continued to have uh, real problems with their devices, and they have now announced they are no longer producing the Note 7. Uh, and this is a move that has cost them, we don't know how much yet. Uh, it will be at least $17 billion, $17 billion? Yeah, with a B, $17 billion uh, just to do the recall, which did not work. So that does not count the massive plummeting stock price. Uh, it does not count the lingering damage to the brand. We did a story this week on adweek.com about the negative sentiment, uh, not just for the Note 7, which of course has gone up dramatically from, uh, I believe, being 6% negative before all this uh, really got going to 33% negative. And then for Samsung as a whole, uh, which of course is a gigantic brand, uh, well beyond even just their their phone devices. And uh, their negative commentary online went from 7% negative uh, to 20% negative. So this is obviously having a big, big impact on the brand. Christine, I haven't gotten to talk to you about this much. How much damage do you think this has done to Samsung beyond just the Note and the Galaxy specific line? 
like you said, I think it would impact the entire brand. Um, it may get people to switch. I'm not sure. Um, but I mean, I haven't seen a lot out there other than, you know, the news that what you just talked about. Um, so yeah, but I think that it, it could have a longer term impact on the brand for sure. The Apple, uh, Stock price is uh, going up and has d been doing very well. I think it's at its highest prices since December. Uh, so they are obviously benefiting not only from the uh, you know very positive reception of the iPhone 7, uh, which despite a lot of the headphone debate, uh, it has sold very, very well. Uh, I think I've re mentioned on a recent podcast, I, ha I ordered one to replace my busted old phone, and they said, oh, you're not going to get it until November because the back orders were so deep. Uh, I ended up getting it quite a bit. So if you're on the fence about ordering one because they say it's going to take a while, uh, it will show pretty good. Uh, the other issues you got, as we mentioned on another recent podcast, is you've got Google rolling out the Pixel phone. So you've got a lot more competition. Uh, Chris, what kind of phone do you use? Are you Apple guy? I'm Apple. I'm an iPhone guy. Did you, ever, did you ever switch off? Did you ever? I did. I had a Razor, a Motorola Razor, I think probably after the iPhone 3 maybe. Uh, I switched over for a couple of years. So it's like a modern Razor, not like the original. It's It was the modern Razor. Yeah. It, uh, um, and I liked the Android system, but and it took me a little while to get used to it. And then when I switched back to Apple, it took a little bit while to get used to it. But I'm, I'm kind of all in on Apple at this point. I feel like my experience switching over to Android was that it, it was like the, the one phone I got was great. And then the next Galaxy iteration was terrible. And whereas with the iPhone, I feel like it's been a pretty straight line. Each one's a little better. Uh, Tim, you recently made quite a leap from what the five? I had the five and now I have the iPhone seven, which is like walking into the light after being in the darkness for a long time. Um, but, you know, this Samsung story, I, I don't think you can understate how damaging this is to Samsung. I mean, when you have a product, normally if you have a product problem, you fix the problem, you, rec you recall the, pro the problematic device or, or, or whatever it is, product, and then you fix it, and then it's over. You know, when we first talked about this on the podcast, I think it was about a month ago, I think shamefully in retrospect, we were all like, ah, oh, it's just a blip. You know, they'll fix it and it'll be fine. And like the opposite happened. Like they, they replaced, they fixed it. And then the replacement phone started blowing up as well. And I think what's, you know, really the salient point here is that it's not that the phone just didn't work. It's that the phone was dangerous. So that moves you into a whole different uh, type of damage to the brand. And it recalls like, you know, stuff like when Toyota cars were accelerating, you know, and they had to, or, or like in the, in the 70s when the Ford Pinto, when, you, when the, the gas tank would explode. Like that kind of that kind of product problem is like such a big, huge, nightmarish problem, and to not be able to fix it, I mean that is like how can people trust Samsung if they don't even know enough about what the problem was to fix it? So I think this has repercussions for years down the road. And if I'm if I'm Apple, I'm like sitting pretty, and Google as well. I think that this is going to help the Pixel phone too. I think there is room in the marketplace for two major phone providers or, or manufacturers uh, brands. Uh, I don't know if there's room for three. There's always been a struggle for that third. Microsoft has wanted to be the third. Several players have wanted to be the third. Uh, but I feel like that ecosystem can only really uh, you know, sustain two. And so when Google announced the Pixel, I was pretty uh, skeptical. And now I am no longer skeptical. I think Google is positioned perfectly to be that challenger brand for the people. Basically, it's, it's Apple and people who don't want Apple. And I think now Google's going to become that. And I bet it's probably going to be a pretty great phone. Uh, so, yeah, I think we're really seeing the end of an era 
you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to see usually Blackberry fizzled out, you know, a lot of these brands, they don't die in, in, oh, in flames. It's really hard not to like <laughs> use puns that are terrible, but no, normally it's a slow burn, a slow fizzle out because they just lose their brand relevance. And in this case, man, just so people will stop buying Samsung TVs, the Samsung washers and dryers, other products you think? I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think so, but I do think it's going to hurt their, their brand has become a punchline. Um, and I don't think people are being super specific to the note seven as that punchline. I mean, partly, but, uh, it's kind of like when, Sony, when, you know, Sony struggle are, with when this. people are saying Donald Trump is the, is a human Samsung galaxy note seven on Twitter. Yeah. Like multiple <laughs> comedians making the same joke during the debate. Uh, and yeah, he's really, it's, it has become this metaphor for things that, that randomly explode. Uh, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see, uh, Samsung's been such an in, incredibly massive and successful brand in recent years. And really on the agency side, it's one that every agency wants. And, uh, so it's going to be fascinating to see where they go from here, but it's also a good time for an agency to get in there and kind of b- help, you know, rebuild it, uh, or launch whatever phone brand they come up with next. Cause I doubt it's going to be called a galaxy anymore. Let's move on to the presidential debate, which at this point has been a few days ago, but I did want to talk about ratings because this uh, election, uh, for all of its ups and downs and many, many downs, uh, has been great for civic involvement. It's nice to see people watching and caring about things like the debate. Chris, you've been covering the TV news industry for a long time. Uh, First, let's talk about the numbers that I'm kind of curious to get your historical perspective. How many people watched uh, this second debate? On television across 11 networks, Nielsen rated, it was 66.5 million viewers. Now, that doesn't count several TV networks that aren't rated, like Fusion and Bloomberg. Bloomberg was also very proud of itself last night. They sent out a note that 3 million people streamed their feed, which was on Twitter. Now that only counts for three seconds. They counted a user if you watched for three seconds on Twitter, which is hardly an accurate measurement, as Nielsen does. So, uh, yeah, about 67 million or so on television. Uh, biggest since uh, the 1992 debate. Which was the uh, second. What, uh, Bush, uh, Bush Clinton. Clinton. Exactly. Yep, that second debate, which was October 15th, 1992. Uh, CBS got the lion's share because NBC, which had the most viewers for the first debate, um, had football, had Sunday Night Football, which was down, but actually did very well. It did 15 million viewers watching the Packers and Giants game. So that did siphon away a lot of viewers from the debate, uh, even though you could have streamed it on NBCnews.com or even some of the NBC affiliates actually put it on their digital sub-channels. But you, you could have streamed the election on NBCnews.com. I mean, the, the, the debate. debate. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yep. And then CBS ended up being the winner with about 16 million viewers, um, but they had a great lead in too. They had football leading into 60 Minutes, which led right into the debate. So um CNN was the big winner on cable. They had about uh, 11 million viewers, third overall after ABC. So respectable for them too. And then, and for CNN to beat Fox, which is the dominant news channel, uh, says something as well. It says CNN's uh, massive uh, expansion into covering this election is paying off for them. So what, one of my favorite tweets after, I mean, of course, it was a great night for tweets, uh, but uh, one of my favorite was Trump's campaign manager after said, how you can tell that Trump won, number one, you watched it. And I think that's fascinating that for them, just people tuning in is a metric. And this seems like it's been a consistent message from the Trump campaign. right? Yeah, it has, because Donald Trump is very um, attuned to the message and what is written and said about him uh, and has been forever. Uh, you know, he's he's he, he looks at all the headlines about him and the coverage about him. And so that's a win. If 66 million tuned in to watch him, then, hey, I won. Right. 
and he really played to his base. Uh, Tim, you, you got to watch it, right? It felt like this time he was not about, Trump was not about trying to expand his kind of brand appeal and reach to new audiences. He seemed to really just be kind of playing into that, into that base. Right. I mean, I think with what happened on Friday with the revelation of this tape, you know, really set the stage for what happened in the debate. And I think he could have, he tried to apologize at the beginning. You know, the first five minutes, I think he was sort of, you know, he was almost comatose, it seemed like. And then he sort of suddenly, I mean, there was enormous pressure on him given the embarrassing tape that had come out. And to me, he was only going to react one way to that, which is kind of to just go nuts. And that's exactly what he did. And it became this sort of very heated thing uh, you know, she, he was on the offensive. And I think that's what the Clinton camp wanted, you know, honestly. So I feel like it, it wasn't a great night for him. And, um, you know, his campaign is just sort of so <laughs> falling off, you know, off the rails. It's pretty clear that's what was going on in Trump Tower pretty much all day Saturday and Sunday before he got on that plane and went to St. Louis. They were practicing what he was going to say when the question came up and when the follow-ups came up. And his response was, they're just words. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like uh, I'll just and and his followers will believe that, and his 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 diehard people will say, "Yep, yeah, those are just words. He didn't do anything, right?" And we've seen, and sure enough, you know that talking point has become, you know, uh, Pat Robertson and these other, uh, you know, kind of uh, television evangelicals and and conservatives have have embraced that. Uh, but yeah, it was a fascinating. If anything, I feel like both sides got exactly what they wanted out of the debate. Uh, Trump fed red meat to his base by really, uh, you know, just saying words like email. I was kind of waiting for I, like my bingo card had Benghazi unfilled. I kept waiting for him to just start yelling Benghazi without even any context. Just starts yelling. it. Was Abraham Lincoln on anyone's bingo card, by the way? <laughs> Probably not. No one saw that one. Wild coming. card it was 20 to one odds that Abraham Lincoln would come up. Uh, Christine, did you watch it? What? Um, well, I watched the first part of it, so I didn't, I didn't see all of it, but, um, I mean, the Ken Bone phenomenon is kind of the thing that I remember and the thing that came out of it. Um, apparently he's dressing up as himself for Halloween because (laughs) there's a run on the red sweaters for the costume. So, um, I don't know. So that's, that's kind of what I, what I got from it. And that was kind of hilarious. Guy who went from seven followers walking into that debate hall to over 140,000 as of last check. In a matter of days, the, that's branding. You know, just the, these town hall style debates are always the most memorable. Uh, I will never forget Gore and, and Bush. And you remember when Gore likes, like, like you could tell that Gore had been practicing to like be more aggressive. Like they want someone had been coaching him, like you need to like stand up to him, show that you've got spite. And so he randomly just stood up and started like walking toward Bush. <laughs> and like Bush, Bush just looks up and goes like. Hey, <laughs> yeah. and then the next day, Barbara Bush was like, I thought he was going to hit him. <laughs> there are some of those moments, yeah, too. With- there was a meme that came out of this one where it looks like um, Hillary and Trump are singing to each other. And someone I saw some stuff people posted that uh, Meatloaf's Paradise by the Dashboard Light. They're singing it. And I don't know. Yeah, so I've had the time of my totally life. Look like they're singing. Yeah. Trump and- said last night to Bill O'Reilly that, well, no, she was walking in my space. If you look, I was standing at my lectern. Well, it was, and it was one of those two where we're just watching it. I was like that him like, let's just be honest, like humping that chair, like like he was like leaning against chair and and like like pressing his crotch up to it. And the second I saw it, I don't know if this is like a meme radar or what, I was just like, and me and several other ad weekers were just like, I need that gif. 
Like that yeah. is a gift that, and sure enough, by the morning, it was not only a gift, it had been sped up, it had been turned into a song. And it's just like, sometimes the internet just delivers exactly what you expected. Also, quick shout out to my alma mater, which hosted the debate. Yeah, Washington. Washington University oh. in St. Louis. And this was the first debate, presidential debate they had hosted since uh, 1992, uh, when I was the editor of the school paper and covered that one. It was Clinton, Gore, and Perot. Uh, and we got to be in the debate hall for that one in 92. So this was sort of like a full circle thing for me watching this. Was there any like Jerry Springer moments like there were in this one where the crowd just starts like pumping well, their fists? No, but I, I believe, I, I seem to remember that uh, the, the, the debate that I watched in 92 that I attended was the one where um, George Bush Sr. Uh, was talking about the war on drugs and was rubbing his nose during during the, that discussion of the war on drugs, which people sort of, this was, you know, 20 years before Twitter, but uh, as much of a meme as that became in, in the early 90s, um, you know, people would have gone crazy about that if it had happened today. That's the one where he was looking at his watch as if he was sort of being put out by being there, having to <laughs> spend an hour and a half in St. Louis. Um, let's talk about the moderators, because I, I, I thought... Uh, there seemed to be a pretty good consensus uh, that Anderson Cooper and uh, Martha Raddatz uh, did very well. Uh, I would say objectively, I think they did very well. Uh, I can see why. Uh, I think some Trump supporters uh, were very unhappy with them. Uh, part of that's the campaign very much has been positioning it as they were bullying him. They posted a video to YouTube during the debate saying, like, here's the moderators bullying Trump, uh, which is funny, this whole like kind of back and forth of like he's he's both, you know, the the bold aggressor and also the constant victim. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, that's a narrative they were trying to, to, to definitely, and, and it worked, you know, it got did. people very upset about it. But Chris, I mean, you're one of the most moderate and kind of unbiased people I've ever met. Uh, what was your you. take on the moderation? I thought they did uh, a fine job. They did their job, which was to uh, move the conversation along, to get in as many viewer questions as possible, especially because this was a town hall format. Um, their job, you know, some moderators will tell you my job is to sort of set the record straight. Others say, no, step back and let the candidates have at it. Uh, Martha Raddatz at one point, who is one of the foremost foreign policy correspondents in the United States covering uh, foreign news, uh, had asked about humanitarian situation in Aleppo, which Donald Trump couldn't answer. And she tried to bring him back. And then he said, well, I've got all these generals supporting me. And then she sort of corrected him. She's smart. She knows that. She knows what their reasons behind, you know, not letting uh, the enemy know or telling the enemy what your plan is about what to do in a certain situation in a battle plan. So um, she may have overstepped a little bit there, but overall they engaged, um, they kept them on track, they pushed where they should have pushed, and they and they held back where they, you know, allowed the candidates to say what they needed to say. Yeah, they were much more involved than the previous two moderators in the vice presidential debate and the first presidential debate. And I think given the high, you know, highly charged atmosphere going into this one, this debate could have become a free-for-all. And I think it needed, you know, really hands-on moderation. And I think they were, you know, they were tough on Hillary as well. I don't think it was like a situation of bias. I just think it was a situation of uh, they needed to, to really step in and try to control what could have really easily spun out. And in terms of time, Trump had complained a couple times, well, you, you didn't interrupt her. How come you're interrupting me? CNN did, had a clock on it, and it showed that Trump actually had about a minute more speaking time than Hillary did. So Lester Holt obviously was most criticized for just not stepping in in really any way and kind of being a completely passive uh, you know, participant. In this one, I felt like they did a, a fine job of not—they didn't turn off anybody's mic. They didn't you know, shut off uh, the conversation. They did warn them several times. What I thought they did a good job on was pressing the points because both candidates, but especially Trump— really 
tried to answer a different question almost every time. Uh, and it, that that's annoying as a viewer, but it's got to be especially annoying as a moderator. And so I did appreciate uh, that they would at least try to, and it's not like they were saying your answer is bad. They yeah. just were pulling the They said the they came back around. The question was... Yeah, and that's and that was a clear frustration online too, is seeing people just this has nothing to do, uh, you know, and the the questions about you, you know uh, how did the first question about asking Trump to address the the tape or and uh, with Billy Bush and and trying to talk about some of that, and then just the answer went in a completely different direction. So for almost from the first minute, the those moderators had their hands full. So I I was very impressed. I thought it good job, Anderson Cooper and Martha Raddatz. Uh, the I did want to talk really quick about Billy Bush. Uh, he has been suspended. Is that correct? Right? Yep. And I, where do you see his future going from here? I don't think it's with the Today Show or with NBC News. They're uh, negotiating his exit right now. Uh, they dragged their feet on this. Frankly, this came out Friday night, and um, they decided Sunday late afternoon, about an hour and a half before the debate, that yes, he was suspended. He wouldn't be on the Today Show tomorrow and suspended indefinitely. Now the talk has turned to uh, his exit. And he's hired a crisis PR firm here in New York to sort of manage all of this. Where he goes from here, I'm not sure. He's been with NBC for a very long time, was, was host of Access Hollywood, which is, of course, where this tape uh, emanated from. So um, where his career goes from here, hard to say, but it doesn't look like it's going to be with NBC. I feel like a conservative talk position or on some, you know, that, that now he, he's basically got a Hannity-style kind of future ahead of him. You think so? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how attuned he is to politics. I think um, he should go back to pop culture, go back to yeah. entertainment reporting. I agree. That's I mean, where he belongs. I don't think he belonged tabloid. in the Today Show in the first place. Yeah, right. yeah. But, I, you know, Entertainment Tonight's certainly not going to hire him. Nancy O'Dell, who was a part of this conversation in the first place, uh, lashed out at him, not by name, uh, but having been involved in this conversation in the first place. Uh, so CBS and Entertainment Tonight doesn't seem like an option. Does he do something syndicated? Does he go back to radio? Uh, you know, entertainment radio, sort of doing a top 40 type morning show or something like that, that's possible. Well, I think he's still involved in radio. I think he does a radio show still. Um, so maybe, but I, I think he takes a break and comes back in a year. Mm -hmm. I think he needs, there needs to be a certain amount of time where people just don't see him. Yeah, I think he's, he's burned his reputation with a certain audience, but obviously there is a large percentage of Americans who probably are not upset. Yeah. And, uh, well, and other, you know, Brian Williams was redeemed from his his um, uh, storytelling, uh, took some time off. Uh, MSNBC gave him another chance, and now he's in the midst of the election covering debate nights and, and hosting his own show, <clears throat> which will be a limited run show until the election's over, and then who knows what happens for him. The Ann Curry debacle was an absolute mess for NBC. So they, they've been through this before. Um, you would think they would know how to manage it. Um, they're not. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for sharing your insights on that. It's been uh, continues to be a fascinating election. We are closing in very quickly on on the big day, uh, so it'd be be great to see what else breaks between now and then. Uh, speaking of things that are breaking and really have massive implications for the world, uh, Tim, I wanted to talk about the new KFC Colonel. We've got yet another one. Now, this one's a little different, though. It is different. This is a pretty unexpected choice. So uh, it's Vincent Carthizer who is many people, most people probably know him, if they know him at all, as uh, Pete Campbell from Mad Men, the uh, account guy supreme. And it's a really funny choice, uh, I think. It's, you know, they've had a lot of comedians do this role. I mean, the background here is that Widen and Kennedy, the, the relatively new ad agency for KFC, has 
uh, you know, rolled out this sort of a curious strategy of uh, having different actors uh, portray the colonel, uh, Colonel Sanders, the longtime, the founder of KFC and the longtime uh, sort of mascot or, you know, spokes character. Um, so they had Daryl Hammond in the role originally. Then they had Norm MacDonald. Jim Gaffigan has been in the role, too. Uh, so Vincent is, uh, is, is, you know, certainly the, he's the least known uh, person who's ever played the colonel. Uh, and it's, he's almost unrecognizable. I mean, from in Mad Men, uh, you know, he sort of played this kind of schlumpy guy, uh, and, and he was chosen for this, for this role because he is the Nashville hot colonel. Uh, and he's, he's, you know, he's got these piercing blue eyes and he's sort of the, you know, the colonel that the, the teeny boppers in the fifties would have, you know, really uh, fallen in love with. Yeah. He's and, styled in this very, like, uh, what would you say like Elvis big bopper kind of. Right, and and the and the TV spot that came out uh, has a girl. It's like a '50s style theme, and 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 this this girl has the the record. The Nashville Hot Colonel has a new record out, and she's lying on her bed staring at the the vinyl cover. And uh, Vincent's actually not in the the spot, which so. was disappointing. It was disappointing. I would have liked to have seen him sort of come in at the end and actually do some acting. But it seems like his his role so far has just been to to shoot some photos <laughs> in this role as the as the Nashville Hot Colonel, maybe. You know, Vincent's kind of an, you know, compared to some of these other guys who have done a lot of commercial endorsements, Vincent hasn't. And maybe he's a little bit protective of his image and maybe he just agreed to do that. I don't know whether he's going to hang around. I, I get the feeling this is kind of a one shot. You know, uh, George Hamilton was was the, the crispy colonel a few weeks ago. So it might it might be one of these sort of quick hits uh, that, that it's it's promoting this Nashville hot chicken, um, this sort of fad food in the in the South that that's become pretty pretty popular and KFC is the first major sort of national chain to do their own version of it so that's it's all tied into a specific product so I don't see Vincent doing like six months of kernel stuff I think it's, it's probably just a quick hit well let's let's listen to a little bit of this commercial uh, where a young woman is lying in bed when her dad busts in what is this it's KFC spicy smoky crispy Nashville hot chicken tenders they're back and I love them. Nashville hottest chicken blasphemy. No, it's not, Daddy. I'm young and I need to try new things. You should too. Oh, no! What I think is fascinating about this is li- having lived in the South most of my life and being keenly aware of Nashville hot chicken. Have you guys had it? I mean, not, not the KFC version. Have you had, like, legit? No. But, Christine, you were there when they brought it in. Yes, it was delicious. It was good. Yeah, so they brought in a big, gigantic plate of uh, Nashville hot, of KFC Nashville hot chicken uh, for us to to sample. Uh, and it's all right. It's it's more interesting, I guess, than regular. Uh, but it, it's Nashville hot chicken for those who have not tried it. Not to get off on a tangent here, but what's amazing about it, it's got this kind of paste on it, this like, hot pepper uh it's, it's hard to describe it's not it's not dry in the way dry barbecue is but it's certainly not wet and so when you bite into it it's like this powder this paste kind of covers your entire mouth and just burns your head from the inside out uh, i love it um but a lot of people it, it's intense but it has for years and years it was this very small niche thing that only nashville did and only nashville did right 
And then all of a sudden it started popping up in Birmingham, Alabama, where I live. And, and these, these small restaurants that have always been very tiny are suddenly becoming chains. KFC picked it up. So it's kind of fascinating just from a brand kind of seeing these products that explode, whether it's like quinoa or whatever, like seeing it suddenly appear everywhere is kind of fascinating. I feel like thanks to KFC, though, this one's going to be kind of a hot moment where it just is there. And then a year from now, no one remembers it. Or like the so KFC came up to the office and gave you some of this? Yep. Wow, How did was, the KFC version compare to the authentic Nashville hot chicken? The KFC one was was wet uh, oh. compared to... It was a little greasy, too. It I was, had a piece, it and it was... Yeah. It was messy. Yeah, yeah, and it's... Um, all the Nashville hot chicken I've ever had felt... Again, not dry necessarily, but it's... Um, it it just feels like they kind of cake it in this in this very dense powder. The flavor was fine. Uh, the, the It was definitely as, hot. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't very hot on the front end, but it burned you after. Um, yeah. So I mean, it's more interesting, I guess. I, I would I would maybe get the tenders again, but uh, so I thought that was funny, you know, seeing that and then seeing the ad for it uh, and living in the South. It's been a fascinating thing. So you know who's not going to be happy about Vincent doing KFC ads is, is Burger Chef, the, uh, the the burger chain from Mad Men. Does Burger Chef is that a real chain? I don't think so. Okay, I didn't think so either. <laughs> I just wanted to know. While we're talking about ads, uh, every week we like to ask Tim to give us uh, a few ads that are actually worth watching. Uh, Tim, let's talk about uh, two of them that were, uh, that were worth watching this week. Sure. So last week, uh, we focused on the Louise Delage Instagram campaign by B- BETC Paris. It was a really fascinating campaign with uh, a fake Instagram woman who turned out to be sort of a PSA against uh, heavy drinking among young people. So that was by a French agency. Now this week we have another interesting spot uh, by a French agency. This one, uh, Paris-based CLM BBDO. And it's an interesting spot for the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, which is a, it's a religious organization that's that's devoted to uh, easing poverty and suffering and loneliness around the world. And this spot's sort of about the latter. It's about loneliness. In particular, it's about loneliness among the elderly. And what the spot does, it, it sort of imagines the future of caregiving and how robots are part of that. So you have this elderly woman named Claudine, and she has a caregiver who is a robot named Ben, which is actually short for, or it's an acronym for Bionically Engineered Nursing. And it really is a thing. Like, robots are becoming caregivers. So it's, it's based in reality. Uh, it's just, I think it's set probably a few years in the future. So in the spot, uh, you see Ben sort of, taking care of Claudine and trying to offer, you know, not just physical, um, but emotional assistance to her. And there's sort of a subtle moment toward the end. It's a really well-made spot, first of all. And there's a really subtle moment at the end that shows really the gap between what a robot can do, uh, you know, as a caregiver and what a real person could do. Um, so uh, not to interrupt you, but let's listen to that moment real quick, because I do think that gives you a good sense of when you say that this is a, an ad about robot caregivers, I think the image people might have is a very different image from the actual ad. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, so let's let's listen to that dialogue. Uh, so just to give the preface, because it's quite a long spot, it's about five minutes. Um, you know, the preface is she could not get out of bed, and the she she just emotionally couldn't get out of bed. The robot helper is trying to get her out of bed, and then later is asking her about that, and and. Uh, is concerned it's a warning sign of worsening depression. So let's listen to that that dialogue between the two. Claudine, you are unresponsive this morning. I have notified Dr. Martin. Ben, 
I'm sorry. I'm... I just needed that moment this morning. I... Would you like to watch some TV, Claudine? Claudine, would you like to dance? So as you can hear, Ben doesn't really understand what Claudine needs in that moment. He eventually asks her to dance, but he doesn't do that at first. So there's that weird disconnect there where he's, he's trying things one at a time to see if they'll work. And, and the point of the spot, I think, is that, uh, and what St. Vincent de Paul is obviously trying to say, is that intuition is, is not possible in robots yet. And so you can't be... You can't offer emotional support and you can't help somebody who's lonely if you're, if you're a robot right now. And, you know, it's, it's a big issue. And what I find interesting about the spot, first of all, it's, it's, it was really beautifully made. So just as a piece of craft, it was really awesome. But then it raises all these bigger issues about the future. I mean, we're, we're talking about self-driving cars. We're talking about AI, all these issues that marketers in particular are dealing with. They're fascinating issues, uh, but advertising has very little interest in addressing what the human cost of those advancements could be. And so, uh, I, you know, people are scared of a lot of this stuff as much as they are curious about it. But you don't ever see ads, you know, if, if, if there's ads that are about the fear, it's always comedy, you know. And so this was a, a really nicely made uh, spot that really touches on those fears in, in an emotional way. And to me, that was really refreshing. And, and, and you know, and, and it's not science fiction. This stuff is happening. And to, to, this is one of the first, you know, long form spots that we've seen that really address, looks at technology and questions the value, the human cost of it. Our, our South by Southwest issue this year was about robots and about how this is the year of robots, um, not in this kind of silly futuristic way, but just in the sense of we have Jibo, uh, the, the, which is the kind of device that this ad was referencing where it's an emotional response. It kind of can sense your facial expressions. And, and so that is, to your point, it's a real thing. And I, what I liked about this spot was that it, it's beautiful, kind of haunting the, the scene where she cannot get out of bed, I thought was so beautifully shot and so heavy to me to watch, uh, just because it, it seemed so real for friends of mine who've been in that very situation. Um, but what I liked about or appreciated about it was that it was not saying like robots are, are completely worthless. It was just saying that they have their limitations. And so having one that can help you day to day, maybe that's nice, but it does not replace a human that can actually really help you deal with these very complex emotions. Uh, Christine, did you get to watch this spot? I did, yeah. And it was definitely haunting and it sort of made me never want to get old. And I want I don't want my parents to get old. Like it's just really um yeah, and it's it, it really hits to the heart of whether, you know, the human connection and whether robots I mean, obviously they can't offer that. So um it really um illustrated that pretty pretty in a pretty yeah, cool way. Let's keep the robots in Home Depot helping <laughs> you find your the, the proper size nails. I think that was and- Lowe's. Another ad that we saw this week uh, that I, re- I really liked was from dating app Hinge, which it's been, I, I have not been single for a very long time, so I've not used any of the apps on the marketplace, but I thought this was fascinating. Tim, why don't you tell us about the kind of the creative concept? Sure. So Hinge uh, claims to be a dating app that will be a lot more personal. Apparently, it uses uh, mutual Facebook friends as a filter for finding a better match for you. So that's sort of interesting. Um, but the spot itself is really lovely. It's sort of a, again, it's a long form spot. It's an animated spot and it shows, it imagines, uh, the world of dating as this sort of misanthropic apocalyptic carnival with all these sort of depressing rides and, uh, 
So this guy kind of wanders into it and uh, is trying to find, you know, his soulmate. And, and he has to, he ends up playing all these, going on all these weird rides or watch, seeing all these crazy games. There's, there's a cycle of loneliness, which is this Ferris wheel with only one seat. Um, there's a, a roller coaster called the One Night Ride that's sort of out of control. Um, My favorite was the Hall cat. of Filters. There's the Hall of Filters. Yeah, catch a catfish. <laughs> that, was, that, was really good. that was great. So it was really, really, uh, Marty Swan, our colleague, covered it, and he called it Tim Burton-esque, which was a pretty good description, too. Um, and it was, you know, what, it reminded me a lot. It was, it was created by Hinge's agency, Red Antler, uh, along with the production company called The Studio. And it, and it reminded me, David, you and I talked about this a little bit. It reminded me a lot of what Chipotle did with the Scarecrow. It has that kind of look and feel to it. That was, of course, CAA and, and Moonbot. But it's got that sort of really rich but dark kind of visual uh, system. And it's just, I thought it was really, really well done. And so, as a, again, as a, as a piece of film, it, it's really awesome. But then also it just touches on you know, something that's just honest about you know, the, you know, so many, if you think about dating ads, you know, eHarmony comes to mind Ugh, and like the, the treacly sort of soft imagery and, and the, re- the reality is, and dating has changed. I, I haven't, I've been married for a long time too, but date from what I, when I talk to young people about this, I mean, the, the Tinder culture is just a, it, it does have, you know, really sort of dark, negative, sort of superficial elements to it that are scary. And to, and, and for a dating app to come out and say like, that stuff is scary and of course, at the end, the guy kind of escapes the carnival and ends up in kind of a soft, treacly land. It's <laughs> literally well. from dark to light. He goes through this door, right? Right, and, exactly. And sort of sees the light. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, it, almost like the French spot we were talking about, it's also about how technology, it has technology made our lives better? You know, that's really the, the, the bottom line here. Like, is Tinder helping people get together or is it, or is it turning uh, dating into sort of this electronic game? That, that won't take you down the right path. Christine, are yes. you are you personally familiar with any of these apps? Yes. Um, so I've, not Tinder, but Bumble, you know. So yeah, I've done some of the apps and it is a nightmare. Um, it's sort of like, it. I mean, I, I loved this ad because it really, you know, showed that. And it. I feel like people are just swiping for the next best thing always. And that's sort of what these apps have turned dating into. Um, so I liked also when he goes into the hinge paradise um i liked the call the call outs um to old old movies like uh ghost and uh dirty dancing and i thought the heart music was really good too oh yeah um, love that, that song good music yeah yeah oh, let's, um let's uh wait just real quick let's listen to some of that what about love don't you want someone to care I just look for any opportunity to get part on the podcast. Sorry, Christine. Go, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, but I thought I, I really liked this uh, this ad. I thought it was great. It it really uh, it really highlights the difference. I mean, hopefully Hinge will be successful with this new concept. Um, it sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, from for a company I'd never heard of and, a, and a, an agency I'd never heard of, it was a pretty interesting spot. Yeah, I you know when when uh, I heard that we had uh, an exclusive on this dating app video, and we've written quite a bit about dating apps, obviously, and and uh, I was expecting something more in the eHarmony space, and there's a bit of cheese at the end, but like uh, 
Yeah, all in all, it was nice. And uh, just the subtlety, I think if you've not seen it, definitely go to adweek.com, look for Hinge uh, and Adweek, and you'll you'll find it. The details we've mentioned, all these little carnival rides, all these little movie references, there's like seven movie references in about 10 yeah. seconds. <laughs> and, uh, and it's just a really fun spot. And so, uh, yeah, I'll be interested to see if that helps kind of build that brand uh, of Hinge as a... Uh, we discussed this a lot, uh, selecting our hot list for this year, which we're in the process of determining those. And we have a hottest way to hook up uh, category for, for these apps. Uh, and there was a lot of discussion this year about Hinge versus Bumble versus Tinder. I think Tinder still remains kind of the, the, the gold standard for a lot of people. Well, maybe gold standard is not the right word, but the, <laughs> yeah. the McDonald's, yeah. if you will. Of, yeah. uh, um, but uh, yeah, so uh, thanks so much, Tim. Always a pleasure to hear about uh, the ads that are actually worth checking out. So thank you for rounding those up. Of course. Uh, for our kind of discussion uh, this week, we're not going to spend too much time on it, uh, but I did want to talk about our LA issue, which is an annual issue we put out. Uh, lots of great stories. Definitely check out uh, on adweek.com. We've got uh, quite a bevy of stories from Los Angeles. Uh, but what I want to talk about is this great issue of the different culture of marketing and advertising and technology in these different cities. And I do feel like uh, LA used to be kind of on the advertising side, not a primary market that you would think of. You had outlier agencies like Deutsch, um, 180, a few others. Uh, but now it's really, they recruiting a lot of talent away from New York. Uh, they're building a reputation. And in, uh, we had a, a great interview with Kim Getty uh, from Deutsch uh, where she Basically, uh, she talks about how Silicon Beach uh, of, of Los Angeles has become this uh, combination of tech, production, entertainment, content creators, and now advertising uh, professionals, and that that has made it a, a much more of a destination city for brands. Uh, Tim, you've lived in New York or, or lived in New York longer uh, th than a lot of folks, and I don't know how much LA exposure you've had, but how would you describe kind of the creative community of those two cities? Well, I think the the stereotype is that New York is way more intense, uh, way more fast-paced, and that out in L.A., you've got a more laid-back vibe, which uh, for creative people, uh, you know, gives them uh, a way to harness the creativity that, that's inside them. You know, the, the, I was talking to David Kolbush, the uh, the CCO at Droga London earlier this summer, and, and he, you know, he, he's obsessed with London for that reason. He's been, he's a, he's a Canadian guy. Uh, but he's on his second tour now in London because the culture of London and the art, the artistic community in particular there is what energizes him. And I think what's happening in L.A. is quite interesting because certainly over the last, even in, in the last five years, uh, L.A. As a, just as a, as a center of art and fashion and, and even food and things like that, it's just becoming a much more vibrant creative place in general. I think that's attracting the people who then uh, help these agencies and companies out there uh, become bigger players in the business. So I think it really starts with the, the creativity and culture of the city that then attracts the talent that can then move that, that industry forward out there. Uh, you know, back when Adweek had uh, regional print editions, uh, I actually, I edited the, the West Coast edition uh, for, for a few years. And, and it was, you know, it, it, this was back in like the late 90s, like early 2000s. And, and you know, the, the, the scene out there now is just light years away from what it was then. I mean, L.A. has a, a long history in advertising as a creative community. I mean, if you think about, we go back to talking about Mad Men, you know, there's, there's a lot of scenes in Mad Men that, t that took place in L.A. And it was, it was the, the, the difference between New York and L.A. 
as, as way back to the 60s, just you watch that show and, and New York is sort of dark and, and then once, once the characters from Mad Men go out to LA, everything's beautiful and sunny and bright and it's just this sort of release. And I think, you know, in people's minds, people working in New York, they think of L.A. as like a release, like a creative release, a release of energy. And it has that. What's changed in the last five to ten years, I think, is the culture has gotten better. So you can go there without worrying that there's going to be no culture. And then also uh, advertising has become way more entertainment driven. And all the entertainment companies are in L.A., you know. So you combine L.A. with you know, San Francisco, which I think the agency scene in San Francisco is also getting a lot better. Uh, and, and you have the proximity there to Silicon Valley. And the whole West Coast, I think it's becoming, um, you know, a more potent force in advertising for sure. And, and but it, it, it's been this way for a while, I would say. It's just gotten, like Lee Clow, for example, in 1972, he joins Shiat Day and he becomes sort of the art director of his generation. And he, he drives that. And, and today, you look at all the agencies out there, Media Arts Lab, which of course is the Apple agency that, that Lee Klaus is involved with, uh, 72 and Sunny, 180, David and Goliath, CAA, Mistress, Zambezi, like the list goes on and on of, of agencies that are true creative players on a national scale just based in LA. Um, so the culture is only getting better in Los Angeles. I think it's got an enormous future. Uh, I think the center of the advertising market in, in America is still New York, but, but LA is, is more and more a, a very close number two. I always think about this piece we ran in the LA issue a few years ago uh, where a woman was describing the, um, how it feels to move from New York to LA after being like a loyal New Yorker. And at first you're, you know, you really have all this nostalgia of like, man, I miss New York. I miss the food. I miss, you know, the, the walkable cities and all this stuff. And then you come back to New York and you are just like inundated with all the bad that you, that your nostalgia blocked out. And so last night I, I thought it was funny because she had a line in there where she said, like, basically, you come back and everything smells like trash. And the That's just August. <laughs> <laughs> well, so last night I go to dinner uh, here in Hell's Kitchen with one of our colleagues in, from San Francisco who was visiting. And literally, it's just a wall of garbage every block that we're walking. And she's like, wow, you really forget the garbage. And it's it sounds like a joke, but anyone who spent time here knows it is a literal reality of just uh, this great wall of garbage that piles up over the course of the week. And so it's just things like that of just that experience of coming back and realizing look, New York is wonderful. Don't get me wrong, but it's there's certainly downsides. Christine, you uh, moved here from Chicago at the beginning of this year, right? Yep. And how would you describe it? Chicago feels like a very brand oriented city in the marketing scene, mm-hmm. which you covered uh, marketers mm-hmm. there. Uh, how would you describe the difference between New York and Chicago? I mean, yeah, you're right about the garbage um, for sure. Uh, I feel like Chicago is uh, cleaner. Um, you know, I don't know. Um, and as far as, I mean, the the agency stuff, um, not sure. I, I feel like, yeah, you're, they're probably focused on the big brands like McDonald's and um you know, the, the bigger brands that are there, but, but Chicago has alleys, so they take their garbage out We'd, back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> New York no, doesn't have alleys. The garbage yeah, is there. You just true. can't see it. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. The garbage is everywhere. It's a matter of where you manage to put it. Uh, Chris, have you spent much time in LA? Uh, now and again, um, it's, uh, been a few years since I've been out there, but, and it changes a lot. You know, it does have that very sunny vibe as Tim was talking about, you get out there and it's, big and it's open it's widespread and the one thing i've noticed over the years because it has grown if the infrastructure isn't what it used to be when i would go you know in the late 90s early 2000s it's 
you know, I think they've lost enough of their residents going over to Nevada or, or other Western states, and I think their tax base has probably decreased a little bit, and they haven't, it doesn't seem as fresh and as clean as it used to be. Um, the drought doesn't help. Uh, it looks browner than it used to be. So, um, you know, when you don't go for four or five years, do you notice those kinds of things? But I think from the creative side of things, yeah, it's absolutely on the rise. I, I spent uh, my last trip there was maybe a, a year or two ago, and I spent most of my time in well, part of it in Long Beach, which hasn't really changed much, uh, but uh, Culver City, uh, Santa Monica, Venice Beach are very different from when I was there in the '90s. Uh, they were more, I don't know how to put it, uh, approachable, normal for someone who's not from the West Coast and who is not image oriented at all. They felt very uh, welcoming and more just like not hipster, but you know what I mean? It's just a little more grounded, a little more Midwestern in a certain way, uh, especially I think Culver City. And and uh, and I had a wonderful experience there, but it was kind of fascinating that I just, I remember going there in the 90s, I felt so out of place. And I just felt like, wow, this is a different world uh, than I would ever be comfortable with. And this came up a lot when we talked to agencies from uh, LA and how they've recruited talent. It's a lot of it's just bringing them out there and exposing them to here's what Santa Monica is like now. And it's wonderful and people are nice and it's not this image obsessed kind of LA that, that we all growing up in the eighties, especially that we were kind of used to. Uh, so definitely check out uh, the Adweek uh, LA issue and, uh, and got several stories there. The, other thing I wanted to talk about, speaking of interesting destinations, Christine just got back from Curacao. Yeah, it's great. I knew nothing about. I know, I know. Um, a lot of people associate it with the drink, but um, the blue drink that is orange flavored, um, which I got to go to the uh, factory that makes it actually. So that was interesting. Um, but yeah, the uh, Curacao Tourism Board invited me down there to speak at one of their conferences about hotels and uh, about how hotels are marketing to millennials in the era of Airbnb. So that was interesting. I kind of shared some insight for an article that I wrote for our uh, travel marketing section um, this summer. Um, so yeah, but Curacao itself is a pretty interesting destination. Um, so give me a sense of where yeah. for those. It's in who don't right. Know, I didn't even where yeah, is get into that. But it's in the it's in the Caribbean. Um, it's actually off the coast of Venezuela. Um, so it's part of the Dutch Caribbean islands. They used to be called the Netherlands Antilles, um, but and they still are called that. Um, it's uh, Aruba, Curacao, and Bonaire. So it's the ABC islands. Um, and uh, Aruba tends to get more American tourism whereas Curacao is a little bit more off the beaten path, less well-known. Um, and they're trying to step up their efforts to market to the U.S. tourism. So you got to talk to their tourism folks, because uh, uh, it, it is so off the mental radar for me. I mean, are were yeah. you guys very familiar with Tim and Chris? I mean, had you? Just the location uh, off of Venezuela, and that it's a former Dutch colony, but yeah. never been to that part of the world. So like the pub trivia kind of stuff. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, so tell us what is their kind of plan for tourism? So right now they're uh, rolling out an ad campaign in New York. Uh, they're targeting New York first as a market. Um, it's called Right Now Curacao. Um, it was done by Catch, the agency Catch. Um, and it's sort of, it's kind of typical of the tourism campaigns you'd see where it's like, this is what's happening in Curacao. There's a beautiful beach. There's some guy jumping off a cliff. There's, you know, someone scuba diving. Um, but they're putting it in uh, subway stations and airports. So I actually saw the ad in JFK as I was getting coffee on my way to Curacao. So that was interesting. Um, 
And uh, they're basically trying to put you in Curacao when you're in a boring situation, like waiting for the subway or being in an airport. Um, and then they also did a uh, smoothie truck um, effort in New York where they had like the local smoothies and they parked them in, I think, Madison Square Park and then another location in New York to kind of get people thinking about Curacao uh, generally. And this is step one of their five-year plan to uh, raise awareness in the U.S. Um, so the first one is raising awareness, obviously. And then the next phase is they, weren't, they don't really have them mapped out yet, but I think they're going to go after um, the Midwest next with uh, Chicago being a hub there. Um, one thing they need to do is add more flights and add more direct flights, so they're working on that. Right now, there's only two that come from JetBlue to JFK that are direct. Um, they're adding a third in November. And then, you know, like I said, they're stepping up. They're going to think about stepping up their flights, their direct flights from Chicago. So that's kind of the plan. Has it been affected by the Venezuelan kind of economic crisis? Um, I think yes, there, I was reading the five-year plan, which was like a 200 page document. And it did mention the declining economy might be a problem. Um, They rely a lot on uh, oil refining. So there's an oil refinery in the middle of the island that's owned by or that Venezuela uses. So the oil comes from Venezuela and then it's refined on this island. Um, so it's kind of a weird situation. There's an oil refinery in the middle of this beautiful Caribbean island, but um, but that's where a lot of their economic um, stuff comes from. So Fascinating. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's, it, is there anything from your just objective perspective as an American visiting, is there anything that you would say separates it from every other island destination I could pick for my honeymoon? Or you whatever? know, I... I it's the history part is really interesting. They have a lot of um, things left over from the Dutch. Um, Willemstad, the capital, has a lot of interesting architecture. Um, so I think that that is actually one of the things they're going to try to play up in their tourism efforts. Um, just the fact that it's, you know, and the fact that it's off the beaten path. They want more of an adventure traveler, not somebody who's just going to stay on the beach or just be at an all-inclusive resort. So um, I liked it better than Mexico. I mean, I've been to Mexico for, for that reason, um, just the fact that you can get a little more culture and it's a little different than, you know, but I've never been to Aruba, so I don't know. It might be really similar. And I think that's probably one of their main competitions in in the region. Tim, you've hit some pretty interesting destinations in the last year. Uh, I want to say uh, Cancun and Bali, right? Yes, I did. I went to Cancun uh, and Bali. I was I was staying mostly at resorts, so I was not an adventure traveler. I was there for work. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to me. Like a lot of these uh, tropical places, it's hard for them to distinguish themselves. And when you do have a little bit of history and you do have something more than just a beach to offer, um, you know, you do have you know that's going to help you. I think because I think millennials in particular want some kind of story that they can follow. You know, um, that that's what's going to attract them. I mean. I remember years ago, like a lot of these marketers, a lot of these tourism boards um, used to just do these funny installations in New York where there was just like a beach scene. I remember one time that this truck was parked outside the Adwick office and it was just, uh, it was for the Mexico tourism board. And it was like a, it was literally like a, almost like a telephone truck, um, but it had glass walls and it had like three, three women inside, like lounging on an actual beach. They'd thrown a bunch of sand in there and stuff. <laughs> And that kind of stuff is, you think about that, it's so unsophisticated. Uh, and I think now you, you need a story as a, as a Caribbean island. Um, it, it's not enough to just say, 
it's cold in New York, it's warm here, come on down, you know? Yeah, I feel like like in that respect, Curacao was a really interesting choice. So they invited you to come speak at, at this industry event uh, because you had written this great story on the trends. And they do seem to follow. So I'm, tra- I'm trying to remember, it's been a while since I read the story, but uh, I'm sure because it was about how to attract millennials and the answer is always mm-hmm. they want experiences, mm-hmm. uh, not right. dot, dot, dot. Uh, I mean, is that the moral uh, for destinations like this? I would say so, yeah. And also to play up the local, any local attributes, because, you know, in competing with Airbnb, their whole mantra is live like a local. So um, for hotels in particular, the ones that are playing up the local elements of their design. So, yeah, so I guess overall Curacao could do that. Um, They, yeah, the, the whole, the bottom line as far as hotels and marketing to millennials goes is you don't, they don't want to wake up in a hotel in San Francisco and wake up in a hotel in St. Louis the next week and have it look exactly the same. So. Well, thank you both, uh, Chris and Christine, for joining us. It's been great to have you. We'll, we'll have you back soon on the podcast. Uh, remember, you can drop an email to us at podcast at adweek.com uh, to send your emails. And uh, we would love to get them and hear what you think of the show and uh, address any questions you might bring up. Our hot list voting is underway. I mentioned this in passing earlier, but if you go to Adweek, look for Adweek Hot List 2016. Uh, this is our Reader's Choice phase where we let you weigh in on categories across TV, uh, digital magazines, uh, helping us select kind of the hottest titles and apps and personalities of the year. So definitely look that up and cast your votes. We are getting some very frenzied voting in several categories. Uh, and so we'd love to get your input on those. Next week is the a Masters of Marketing uh, Conference, uh, which is a big deal for brand marketers. And we're going to have a lot of uh, brand-oriented content in the uh, print issue next week. Uh, so lots of I don't want to give away too many of them, but there's some really good stories in that one. Uh, so definitely check out our print issue next week. Our theme music is by Home. Uh, this week's episode was edited by Kevin Eck. Thank you, Kevin. And uh, please take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews help uh, us tremendously and help new people discover the podcast. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. I'm David Reiner with Adweek, and we will talk to you next week. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.